The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Chloe Dubois. She's the co-founder and president of the Ocean Legacy Foundation. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So we're going to find out all about what the Ocean Legacy Foundation is and how it operates and how we can get involved and all these good things. So tell us a little bit about the Ocean Legacy Foundation. Yeah, so um, it's a nonprofit organization based in Vancouver, Canada, and it was founded in 2014. I also, through her course, uh, watched this film called Albatross back in 2011 before it was uh, publicly launched last year and really saw how plastic pollution was decimating uh, the albatross population out in the Midway Atoll Islands. And I had, at that time, I had no idea about the impact of plastic. I hadn't even really thought about it at that point. Um, And it kind of opened what is now, you know, the journey that we've been on in founding Ocean Legacy and the work that we've been doing and where we're taking it and, and our overall vision. The normal way is to consume out of lots of garbage and plastic and all this stuff. And then you're kind of like the weird one if you are refusing that. Uh, but I think things are going to change, right? It's kind of going in a good direction. So hopefully. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's becoming more apparent. People are starting to realize that we aren't separate from our natural world mm-hmm. and that our consumption habits are, you know, destroying the planet. And I think there's almost like a paralyzation in that uh, for people because it's so overwhelming. Where do you start? you know, how how can I make a difference, that type of thing. And, and oftentimes it feels so overwhelming that people freeze um, and become lost in the busyness of their day-to-day lives. Yeah. So it's, it's really um, up to us to, you know, be accountable and to push through that um, and, and to act on the solutions that we all know kind of need to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I say in a lot of episodes, like Canadians are unique because we're a northern nation. So we have to heat our homes and we have to get to work. That's just like the way that our world is right now. Mm -hmm. So what are people supposed to do immediately? Like they can't just sell their car if they have to drive like, you know, to work and there's no public transportation. You know, a lot of us live outside of cities. Uh, So one thing that we can do now is reduce our plastic and reduce our garbage and you know, reduce our food waste. Like these are actually really big things that if millions of us were doing it, it would make a huge, huge impact. So a lot of the things we talk about the show are things we can do today, like immediately. And there are things that make a difference. So uh, I like, Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, So you have an EPIC program, E-P-I-C. Can you tell us what that stands for and a little bit about that? Um, Sure. So EPIC is really an acronym Um, which combines education and research, policy and advocacy work, infrastructure development, and then we have a cleanup and restoration, sort of our hands-on education component. Um, And it's really the culmination of all of these components that create that EPIC program to really come up with these solutions to combat plastic pollution at its source. 
Um, so through our education and research, we're setting up, you know, skill training on plastics, how to separate them, identify resin codes, um, and then also set up research sites so we can track reaccumulation rates, um, which will allow us to really assess the, uh, uh, the success in, of our efforts through our cleanup. We work with governments one-on-one to start to reassess uh, policy gaps and look at policies that might lend to a specific community um, to help reduce plastic waste um, and mitigate it uh, to begin with. Um, And then our infrastructure development is really looking at that innovation and looking at uh, new technologies that might help us uh, be part of the solution and in the big puzzle of the dynamic issues of the plastic pollution crisis. So here we're really looking at beginning with a lot of missing infrastructure. Um, you know, parts of Canada, I know British Columbia has a lot of infrastructure set up for recycling and processing purposes. But when we get out into small, um, especially out in developing countries, um, there's just, uh, you know, no policy, no infrastructure, no cleanup happening, really no education and research happening. So Epic is really just a, a platform to start to connect um, with people that need the resources um, and and to help people one-on-one to create those tools um, and to help uh, provide tools to leaders that are ready to create change in their own communities. Wow, very cool. And you were recently in Panama, is that right? Yeah, I just got back actually a couple days ago. Um, And down there, we're working with a small island community um, out in Las Perlas, which is off the Pacific coast of Panama. Um, And we were, in just a few weeks, really, of cleanup operations, we removed more than nine tons of material. Um, Wow. So I don't know how to give listeners a perspective of what that looks like, but it's a massive mountain. We collected about 125 of these mega bags, and each bag is six feet tall uh, by four feet by four feet. Wow. Um, So, I mean, the concentration levels that we're dealing with on some of the remote, uh, some of the most remote areas on the planet are enormous. So these were pieces of debris and plastic that were washed up on the island? Yeah, so we're, we cleaned a lot of really remote areas, and that's sort of where Ocean Legacy specializes in, is going to those places that no one else really goes to, mm-hmm. um, and then removing large amounts, large volumes of plastic pollution um, along these sort of remote coastlines. So what, um, what did you do with the bags after? So you got the, the trash in the bags, mm-hmm. and then where do you take that? It went back to Panama City. The next stage in our EPIC program is to start to build the infrastructure. So before these cleanups even happened, we were doing education, engaging with people to bring people out on cleanups so they could get that firsthand experience. Then the cleanups happened, and now we're on to the infrastructure phase. So we're looking at creating collection baskets, um, continuing on with education, and hopefully start to introduce some basic processing capabilities within the community that community members can then lead. But until we can reach that point, um, the plastics that we did collect went back to the city. Um, We hand-sorted every single bag and removed all of the hard-mixed plastics, all of the PET materials, and materials that we thought um, would be well-suited for various artistic art installations and that kind of thing, because there is quite um, a community forming around creating art 
um, with the, these sorts of materials. So we pulled out all the flip-flops and that sort of thing, and, and we'll see where the local community wants to take that. So, yeah, so we're hoping that we're going to recycle probably 70%, if not more. Um, oh, wow, so that's good. our target right now. Because that's a hard part about beach plastic is that it's so weathered that nobody wants to buy it, right? That's what I've heard. It's like too degraded. Yeah. Yeah, it's degraded. It often contains sand, grit, or um, various organic matter. Mm-hmm. And when in the recycling world, you can't you can't mix, even though it's that uh, might be a resin code too, so a high density polyethylene. You can't. There's many different forms of high density polyethylene. So you have low molded, extruded uh, resin code number two, and they often can't be melted at the same temperature. So when we're collecting all these various items, you know, if you throw something in a landfill, eventually we're going to find it on a beach. So that kind of gives you the scope of what we find on these cleanups. And so when we bring all these materials together, it becomes fairly complex when we try to process them and try to find afterlife solutions for a lot of these materials. So that's sort of where Ocean Legacy has been focusing a lot of its energy is uh, what can we do with these materials? Um, what sort of technologies exist that we can empower to process um, and, and build to process these materials? And so that's that's sort of why we're doing this work and where we're focusing our energy. So do you say when we throw things in the garbage to go to landfill, it's going to end up on the beach? Do you mean, like not, like let's say I eat a bag of chips and I put it in my landfill, like it's going to stay in my Canadian landfill. But do you mean that like that the other bags of chips Not around the world? <laughs> I mean, waste becomes lost in transportation quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever been behind a garbage truck and things are kind of flying up the back? Yeah, it drives so, me nuts with our recycling trucks because they have 19 seconds to pick up each individual box and like throw it in the truck and mm-hmm. drive away. So if anything drops on the ground or spills, like they just leave it and it blows everywhere. It drives me nuts. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. But that's the recycling so, bin. I mean, so things don't blow out of garbage cans or garbage bags though. Right? No, but and I, I think in Canada, and I can't speak for every community here, but hopefully there's been more thought in put in invested into landfill placement. Um, when we're dealing with a lot of countries that I've visited more in developing nations, you can see landfills that are built right along lakes and rivers. And um, you can literally see the waste entering the waterway on on site. So, I mean, I, I think I said that more in generally speaking, um, just in the conditions that exist worldwide at the moment. Yeah, see, um, well, I think I think you have a good point with that because what, what I'm not saying it Right. Let me try again. So <laughs> so if I have a chip bag, right, like maybe mine will end up in landfill, but like there are millions of chip bags around the world, like in other countries who don't have landfills set up and like good garbage pickup that will end up in the ocean. So the way I, I, I like this quote that you're saying, like it's actually making me think quite a bit. So the chip bag goes in the garbage. I can't recycle it. Right. But a lot of people around the world are just going to throw that somewhere that's going to end up in the ocean. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like all of that stuff, yeah. But in, even the stuff too that we put in recycling. So anything that we kind of use and throw in the garbage or recycling in North America is stuff that ends up in the ocean in other countries, right? That's what yeah, and I mean we we do export quite a bit of our waste as well, depending on the yeah. province you're in. 
Yeah. Um, and so again, you get lost in these tra- and and these forms of transportation. Um, yeah. I mean, waste waste is a really dynamic and interesting challenge because mm-hmm. a lot of us don't know where our waste goes. Um, in British Columbia, I know that we're kind of a province of exceptions because we do have a lot of in-house infrastructure built and we do have extended producer responsibility programs in place to deal with a lot of this waste. And if we take the chip bag, for example, I mean, last year we just created a a chip bag sort of wrapper type recycling program. So oh, there's technology there now to process a lot of this waste. And it's really a matter of having the infrastructure, the investment for infrastructure, the political will um, to, to make these changes happen in our own communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where does your funding come from all of this? Like do people, can people donate individually and then sort of contribute to beach cleanups around the world through your foundation? Yes, definitely. So our foundation runs on uh, donation dollars. So we're a nonprofit organization. We also write a lot of grants, and then we also get corporate sponsorship dollars as well. Oh, so good. It's kind of, and, and government funding as well. So it's kind of a, a culmination of um, lots of different sectors coming together. Mm-hmm. And I saw on your site, so if somebody sees like a beach that's really in trouble, they can kind of contact you and and maybe get a cleanup organized that way? Yeah, definitely. So um, on our website, um, people can actually apply. We have an EPIC portal now where people can apply for assistance in the various components that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can enlist GPS coordinates of a plastic pollution hotspot in your community that you feel needs to get cleaned up. So there's a map that you can actually create and count on our website. It takes only like less than a minute. And then you can post um, areas that um, need cleanup, and then someone from our team can contact you directly, um, and then we can kind of start the conversation from there. You know, over the next five years, we're we're actually working with Nestle Waters on this to bring these tools, develop these tools to a lot of these developing uh, nations. So we are looking for new locations and new communities, so you can check our website out. Um, www.oceanlegacy.ca and you can find our epic portal there where we can start to work with community leaders and and hopefully you know build these tools that are going to lead our into our future for a more sustainable one you know who would really benefit from it i think is the town of iquitos in peru it's right where the amazon starts i don't know if you've been down that way so i've been down there a couple times i made a little video on youtube about it I went down and I was kind of checking out the fires because we know that that was a big issue this year. It's really wet that in that area, so the fires aren't too big of a deal, but the plastic pollution is absolutely out of control. And it was so sad to see. And the water, the water goes down like hundreds of feet and then goes up depending on whether it's high water or low water season. And so when it's low water, the water recedes and goes so far and all you see is the shore that's covered in plastic debris. And it's like... Uh, tarps and bottles and styrofoam containers. And when you're traveling around on a boat around the city, you can see hands coming out of boats and hands coming out of windows because a lot of their houses are built on stilts and they just throw everything into the river. And I think it's just because this is how they've lived for thousands of years where everything is kind of organic, you know, so you can throw it in the river and it's not a bad thing. But now that everything's plastic, I don't think people really know the problems that happen when when dolphins eat it 
you know, when they mistake it for food or uh, when birds eat it, like you're talking about the albatross video, there's, you know, there's so many birds down there in the Amazon. Um, And a lot of the problem, too, is that they don't have clean drinking water, so they have to go and buy it, right? And the most readily available thing to drink out of is plastic bottles, and there's no recycling, so it just ends up in the river. It's pretty, it's pretty sad. Exactly. And there's really good, like, solutions because people have been living into the jungle so long like there's these gourds that grow off of trees and you can make bowls out of them and they're like very very good bowls and they're very easy you just dry it out and then you have a bowl right so there are so many options i think for people to make money off selling like natural products and stuff Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah it's a cool place are there any other uh, like notable places uh that you've done some projects in like panama um any other cool places? Yeah, we've um, done quite a bit of work in um, just south of Puerto Vallarta in Mexico as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and clean up work in Costa Rica and then um, did some collaboration stuff up in Alaska. So we've been primarily oh. um, along the west coast of North America and South America, Central America. But now we're, we're looking to broaden beyond that as well. So um, hopefully we can be engaging with about 10 different communities in five different continents over the next five years is sort of our goal. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we're looking to engage and make a difference where we can. Costa Rica is pretty clean. Don't they have like, aren't they really eco-friendly and they're into renewables? And do they have like good recycling programs or did you see, still see a lot of plastic pollution down there? Um, no, it, it was, they have an actual uh, cleanup program where they engage with conservation officers and police officers who actually help lead these cleanups under the Blue Flag program, um, which was pretty cool to meet leaders doing that and to collaborate with uh, cleanups that were existing and seeing where we could do some more cleanups. So, yeah, but it, and I, I think it depends on where you are. You know, in a lot of the more touristy areas, we found it to be cleaner. Um, but then when you, again, go out and in rural communities, you can see more waste. Because mm-hmm. I just don't have, like, the infrastructure, I guess, to take it away, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and, and policy, too. I mean, it needs to be a meeting, I believe, through grassroots movement and sort of a top-down approach with government. Um, and, and what we're trying to do with our program is sort of find that sweet spot where we can work with these governments to build these frameworks, but then really build a grassroots movement around why people should even care to begin with, mm-hmm. um, around yeah. you know, a lot of the education gaps around these issues, and, and looking at, at where we can start to fit those puzzle pieces together, and how to create almost like a neutral platform that can be accessible for all stakeholders to come together, because I think in doing this work, I've seen that everybody can agree that plastic pollution in our natural environment should not exist. Um, and so now it's a matter of putting the tools together on how do we achieve that together. So that's really where we come in and we're, you know, we're trying to identify the various capacities, where the gaps exist, and what can we do to assist in, in moving things forward. Wow, that's a very good plan. It's so important to deal with this stuff, and it's so hard, and it's so complex, and there are so many different parts of it, so I hope this works out. Chloe, what was your background before you started this not-for-profit? 
So my background is actually in resource management, <laughs> which I guess is nice. uh, a fitting background to have going into this. But yeah. I was also um, a canoe and kayak adventure guide hiking. Wow. Um, so I have a really deep love and passion um, for the natural environment. Um, and then combined with the natural resource background, Cool. My background is kayaking too. And so... Oh, no way. Yeah, isn't that funny? (laughs) We did this episode, one of my first ever episodes was Ski to Save the Planet. And it was all about how getting outside and loving the world will inevitably make you care for it more and like getting out and seeing how beautiful it is. So like Whistler is a big part of my my past, you know, like getting out there and just seeing how wonderful and pristine and beautiful things can be. And then kayaking, of course, because I've kayaked on a lot of big rivers around the world and just seeing these amazing places. And when I was kayaking back in like 2004, 2005, like there wasn't a lot of plastic garbage, but now like I took a long time and didn't travel and I've been a couple places lately and I see a lot more of it now. Like I think it's just this problem that's getting worse and worse, especially for our rivers. Have you, uh, so you probably kayak a lot around Vancouver, like, like what is that arm that goes up Vancouver? Um, Not salmon arm, Indian arm, I think it is. Yeah, I actually live in Deep Cove, which is connected to Indian Arm. Oh, cool. So I uh, spend a lot of time in that area. It's really beautiful. It's gorgeous there. Very yeah. inspiring to, yeah, to just connect to that, back to that natural world for sure. Yeah. Have you done the Broken Islands group that's over on the other side of the island? Um, yeah, I've been through there a bunch of times just because when we go out on remote uh, cleanups around BC, that's usually, um, we pass that, that area with our boat, so... Um, we go through there, and it, I mean, it's loaded <laughs> with plastic pollution oh, no. in there. It's pretty sad. Oh. Um, and I know that lots of people have done cleanups there in the past, um, but it just keeps washing up. So, I mean, British Columbia shorelines are surprisingly incredibly polluted um, when we get up to those more remote areas. Yep. Um, and that's part of you know the inspiration for this work as well, is our headquarters and bases here. Uh, and we've done primary, primarily a lot of our cleanup work um, in British Columbia and going out to areas like McQuinn, uh, Brooks Peninsula, which is kind of a, a peninsula that sticks out on the northwest coast of Vancouver Island. And those concentrations are some of the worst um, I've seen in Canada. Like, is that um, like Cape so Scott, like the Cape Scott area? It's just south of there. Okay. Because yeah. d- I did that uh, north, what is it called? The North Coast Trail. So it's a five-day hike. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Have you done it? Um, I've been in that area. I haven't done the actual hike, but it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's so amazing. There's bears and wolves running around, and uh, you can see whales bubble netting like out in the ocean because oh, you have to walk oh, a lot of a lot of beachfront. Like a lot of the trail is beachfront, and you can sleep on the beaches and stuff. Um, but that actually was probably the biggest wake up call for me with plastic pollution, and that was nine years ago that I did that trail. And it was covered in Japanese water bottles. Like there were hundreds and hundreds Mm -hmm. of them. And I don't know if like a container, like a shipping container spilled or something like in Japan. I know the currents come over there because there's this boat in Prince Rupert, I think. And it's like a Japanese fishing boat, a little tiny one. And it's on like this historical display. And it's like this boat came all the way from Japan, like on its own, (laughs) because this is the way the currents work, right? So we're getting a lot of that stuff from Asia right on the... Uh, the BC coast, so totally. And um, the unfortunate devastation of the tsunami happened out in Japan. We saw a huge influx of material come over. I think they were estimating, I think, 1.5 million tons 
um, entered into the ocean that, and that was just 30% of what they were estimating could float over. Um, so we, we saw a massive influx of polystyrene materials, oh. um, PET water bottles, you know, floats, I mean, you name it, we, we kind of found it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's so sad to have to do the cleanup work because you didn't make the mess, you know? But there's just, I think there's people out there that are like the doers and the polluters, maybe. <laughs> you know, like we'll go out and be like, oh, okay, well, somebody's got to clean up this mess. So <laughs> I guess I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, I mean, and that it's, it's time that polluters stop polluting and pay the cost and become accountable for what they're doing. And so, yeah. you know, we spend quite a bit of time within the organization um, looking at various brands we find contacting various companies uh, and bringing the issue to light with them, asking for help to support further cleanup efforts as well as change management practices to best practice to reduce plastic uh, pollution and having those that pollution come out into our waterways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, in this work too, I, I've seen the attitude a lot, you know, not it's not my plastic, it's not my problem. Mm-hmm. And that core belief needs to shift. As soon as a piece of plastic reaches a waterway, it can go really eventually anywhere in the world, um, mm-hmm. depending on the current. So this whole mentality of I don't need to care because it's not my plastic needs to shift because we are on one planet. Everything is interconnected systematically and it's going to affect you, your children, your grandchildren, you know, sister, brother, you name it. We're all affected by this problem and we need to be working together in order to, to shift that mentality and to come to solutions that that can, you know, bring us into a, a future that has less, hopefully no plastic pollution one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that argument, like, we're so far from the ocean, it's not us. And then what if your city's shipping those things to Asia, and then Asia is either burning it into the atmosphere to get rid of it, or somehow it ends up in the ocean that way, or the company you're buying from is a huge, huge polluter where, you know, millions of their bottles are getting into the ocean and you're like supporting that company you know but I want to ask you one more question before we go so what do you do in your own life to reduce plastic one of the most life-changing decisions you can make and that I've made is just refuse if you don't need it don't take it it's still being offered you know especially when I was down in Panama um, because there are a lot less alternatives um, in various other countries but in in Canada if you don't need that plastic item. If it's single-use, non-recyclable, don't take it, don't use it, and spread that message. Because if you can inspire uh, people to stop using certain items, then that will completely shift markets um, and and buying buyer choices. Um, so I think for, f- foremost, um, that is one of the most important is to refuse. Also, I use uh, reusable tea balls a lot because I, I love tea. Um, oh, and Tea bags are actually a, a major source of microplastics and release billions of nanoplastics. Almost, I, I believe it's with every tea bag. Yeah. <laughs> it is disturbing. <laughs> yeah, and I, and you're ingesting that. And really, the effects, the, the science is not there yet to really um, be conclusive on what the effects are yeah, by ingesting right? so much of this microplastic. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I wouldn't want. I mean, you wouldn't go ahead and eat a plate full of plastic. <laughs> like, I, like, I wouldn't want that in my body. So if I can try to reduce 
um, the end, like reduce that plastic entering into my body, I will choose that. So uh, using reusable uh, tea balls, um, using, you know, reusable water bottles, really trying to just reduce that um, consumption. Because I think at the root of all of this and at the root of our envi- environmental degradation, we are um, over-consuming the planet. And so I think we need to be reducing that consumption. So, again, I think it comes down to refuse it if you don't need it. If you do need it, then take it. But then I would even then question what happens to this after. If you have the ability to do research uh, on a laptop, then I would start researching where your waste goes. Um, the you know exporting waste is a very complex system, but like reaching out to your local recycling plant and asking, becoming curious about the issues and um, where it all goes, I think is another really important step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And encouraging to stop using it for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that we're all just wasting a bunch of stuff that we don't really need to waste. And there are some things that we need. And sometimes it's easy on the zero waste countdown to forget that there are some things that we need, like some plastics and medical equipment and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, use the stuff you need, get rid of the stuff you don't, and then join a beach cleanup or something <laughs> to, to help with the problem that's already there. I think it's multifaceted. We have to stop, like turn off the taps so much that they're, we're not mm-hmm. producing so much, we're not using so much. But then also we have this big issue of cleaning it up because there's so, so much that's already here. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting point too, just because there are people that advocate that cleanups are, are not important. Um, because they would like to see the pollution not there to begin with. And in that regard, I I agree that it would be great if cleanups weren't a necessary component. But until cleanup is not necessary, it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's one of our, our key pillars in our EPIC program is cleanup, because we would like to see these not have to occur, but you know, we have to do them in order to restore a lot of these ecologically sensitive areas around the world so that other creatures hopefully have a better life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's so good, the work that you're doing. So this has been really nice to talk to you, and uh, I wish you the best of luck going forward, and I look forward to hearing more about your projects. So this has just been great. Thank you, Chloe. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a great experience. That was Chloe Dubois. She's the co-founder and president of the Ocean Legacy Foundation. She was calling in from Vancouver. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. (laughs) 